This episode of the Police One Podcast is sponsored by Officer Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting officerstore.com. Courtesy of Officer Store, listeners receive 10% off now through December 31st using the promo code POLICE1. That's police and the number one. Welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. Thanks for checking in. I'm Jim Dudley. Be sure and check us out, our video and graphics on our YouTube version on the Police One YouTube channel. You know, some situations leave law enforcement officers feeling isolated in dealing with mass casualty incidents, such as an active shooter or other incident requiring an immediate response. And we've seen so many more disciplines assuming roles in research, mitigation, investigation, response, and prevention. Well, our guest today is Dr. Jack Rizal. He is a professor of psychiatry and an adjunct professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh. He divides his time between emergency psychiatry and violence prevention. He is the director of the Southwestern Pennsylvania Regional Threat Assessment and co-director of the UPMC system-wide threat assessment and response team, START. Dr. Rizal has served as an incident commander for mass shootings and has been involved in the behavioral health response to several mass casualty incidents. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Jack Rosell. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Yeah, it's great. I mean, your bio is huge. It is in the uh, links, uh, the show notes uh, below. But, you know, interesting, considering your background, how does somebody like you end up specializing in violence prevention and yeah. mass shootings? Well, so I've been doing emergency mental health in one way, shape or form since I was a hotline volunteer in college, my, my God, more than 30 years ago now. Um, and I just I sort of got bit by the butt, right? I'd, I'd hit college thinking I was going to do probably emergency medicine. Uh, I'd uh, done some EMS, you know, first responder kind of stuff, uh, you know, early on in my life and, and just sort of got bit by the bug. And over the years, doing a lot of emergency mental health, one of the things we do is we respond after the bad events, whether it's, you know, the kids shot on the street corner in front of the family, whether it's the mass casualty event. And we're there to work with the survivors and the witnesses and the families and, and the first responders, you know, through any number of different interventions, for, uh, different things for the community, but certainly a lot of CISM for our first responder and our second responder colleagues. And I realized a while ago, that a lot of this was about violence. And I realized a while ago that, you know what, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at doing that stuff. I'm, I'm good at recognizing and managing PTSD. And I don't like it that much. Uh, you know, we'll keep doing it, always do it. But I, I wanted to find a way to get preventive. And over the years, I, I found my way to this thing called behavioral threat assessment and management that I really think it is one of the best tools we have to prevent, whether it's the big horrific event that captures the news cycle because someone went for a huge body count or whether it's that one person is pissed off at one other person and, and it won't even make the five o'clock right so well, we have a toolkit to work with some of these and I, i'm glad to be able to share some info about it yeah well can we actually identify people who might be at risk for carrying out these attacks in advance 
uh, we hear about things like leakage, uh, that maybe there's some precursor evidence, but as humans, we tend to rationalize those kinds of information, don't we? Yeah, right. You know, we're, we're sitting in the break room and we hear someone say, hey, I don't want you to come in tomorrow. You know, it could, could, could be messy. Like, and people in their day-to-day -day lives, we hear these things all the time. There was a, a study recently in, in California where, you know, maybe a quarter or a third of the population within the past year had heard someone say something that, that indicated that they were headed towards an act of violence, right? We hear this stuff a lot. And most of the people who hear our friends or family, right? So we don't want to we don't want to jack up that person, right? We we don't want SWAT kicking down the door. We won't, don't want we don't want someone like me coming to lock them up in the hospital. Um, they, they want them to be treated respectfully, and if they're concerned that the response isn't going to go great, they're not going to raise their hand. Or if they don't recognize what they're hearing, they may not raise their hand. If they don't have someone that's credible that they trust to share that information with, they may not raise their hand, and that's a huge missed opportunity. Yeah, and, and it is especially true in cases involving those with uh, mental health issues, people in crisis, especially family members uh, or people who are worried about the stigma. Yeah. But after several of these incidents, uh, we hear that mental illness may have played a role. And I know when we talk about statistics and reports afterwards that we we often don't talk about mental illness unless there is a confirmed diagnosis. And I think yeah. that's the the fine line that we could do without, because certainly if you're going to do this plan to shoot little kids in the face or hundreds of people just sitting at a concert, I mean, there's got to be some mental illness there, right? Well, so when I say mental illness, I, I have a very specific set of criteria, a very specific way to define it to confirm that diagnosis. Um, to be clear, most of these people are not mentally well, and they, they suffer from a lack of mental wellness. But most of them, from our best data that's out there, most of them, if they, if you sat them down in front of a psychiatrist like me and in my crisis center and an ER, we, we wouldn't necessarily be seeing a diagnosis. We wouldn't necessarily say, ah, I know what this is. I know how to treat this. This person, you know, meets such and such criteria for such and such admission. To be clear, there's a subset who are very ill and the, the illness very clearly plays a role uh, in, in the attacks that they're, they're carrying out. Um, but our, our best research that's out there says most of the time, uh, not so much, right? And then there's the other thing, right? It, it's easy to say, hey, look, this person engaged in this terrible act and they have a history of mental illness blank. Keep in mind that by the time you reach our age, you know, um, probably about half of Americans have uh, met criteria for at least one diagnosis. Um, it's not so much are people engaging in violence while they have a diagnosis, but are they engaging in violence because of that diagnosis? Is it playing a contributory or a causal role? And vanishingly rarely does someone engage in one of these acts and they survive and it goes through the court process and it, it actually meets criteria for a, a GMI or an NGRI verdict. It, it, it happens, but, but it, it's quite rare. So, yeah. So, okay. Let's plan out a situation where we don't rationalize what yeah. we just heard. We don't care about stigmatizing anybody. And so we make a report. And uh, I mean, if we reported every incident where somebody said, God damn it, I hate this place. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I mean, that's a lot of information to sift through, yeah. right? What is threat management and what can we do to reduce the risks? So threat management is a really cool uh combination of, of tools and models. And a lot of times I think about it, it's sort of this, 
this weaving together of best practices from law enforcement and behavioral sciences and sort of draped over the infrastructure of, you know, intelligence analysis of like, how do we deal with uncertain, unclear, shifting information in high risk situations. Um, and it blends together a lot of these things and it can look different in, in different settings, right? So, you know, in a region, so for example, today I was on a call planning about some things for our, for our state, what are we gonna do and who, you know, who needs to come to the table for that? Part of this is law enforcement, part of this is, is behavioral health, but also engaging with houses of worship, higher education, K-12, people in the community and sort of bringing together these folks. I kind of think it, it's, when we roll this out, it's, it's kind of like CPR, right? I don't need everyone out there to be a cardiologist to take me to the cath lab if I have a heart attack. But I sure hope that if I'm grabbing my chest and I drop over on the bar tonight, someone knows CPR, someone knows to call 911 and get things moving, right? And we need sort of certain tiers, right? We need, you know, good medics to roll out. We, uh, you know, we need a good hospital to go to. And it's kind of like that for threat management. We need people in the community to know that, you know, see something, say something. Nice, nice slogan, but what do you see and who do you say it to? And when you say it to that person, do they know what to do next with it? Or do they just go, and eh, doesn't sound like a, a reportable crime to me. We're going to let it roll, right? Uh, or, yeah, it's just going to be an appearance ticket or a summons. It's, it's not worth the time to try it, right? Um, you know, one of our metaphors, you know, we talk about you got to collect the dots before you can connect the dots. Um, and part of this is you got to recognize the dots. And you got to know who to hand off the dots to. Um, you got to have the right people to connect the dots and see the patterns. And that requires these multidisciplinary collaborative teams. And you got to have the infrastructure. And some of this is the laws in, in the jurisdiction. And some of this is the vision of the leadership to be able to do something when you see the pattern. And to be clear, sometimes we see a pattern and we are going to say, oh, crap, like we hope we catch this person left a bang. Um, but Sometimes we have good tools to put in place, whether it's extreme risk protective orders, whether it's really basic interventions like helping people to connect to basic stuff like housing and food and employment and positive social connections. Adding just one of those can reduce violence risk by 50%, right? And these aren't heavy lifts for, for modern society. These are things that we can actually do quite easily sometimes, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you remind me of, during my 32 year career, I think I saw the evolution of cops saying, uh, yeah, I had a gut feeling or something just wasn't right to training to get them to articulate what they're seeing. And they're seeing it, they just can't articulate it. And then they've got yeah. to sort of break it down. So we've got to have pretty good people manning the phones or uh, taking the data from the public and asking those follow-up questions like, well, what what did you see and what did it mean to you and how yeah. did they act? Get get to pull that information. This takes judgment and it takes teams working together in a healthy way so that they can make good judgments, right? I, I don't have it an easy checklist. There's th these aren't these are complex and rare behaviors and the we're not going to have like, these are the exact five criteria. There's no one risk factor that in and of itself is sufficient and necessary for engaging in some of these acts of violence, right? Yeah. Um, and if it's just me looking at this pattern, 
all my cognitive errors and biases and shortcuts are going to come out and I'm going to screw up and I'm going to make mistakes. And by the way, some of that's going to be, you know, all these things we talk about, implicit bias and racism, stuff like that will come out and play. But when you have a good, healthy, blended and diverse team looking at these problems together and able to have that sort of healthy back and forth about is this an issue, is this not an issue, that's part of what helps us do this well. And it's also what helps us get creative about looking at that person at risk who might be on the pathway to violence and thinking not just what are their risk factors, but what are their protective factors? What are the strengths? What can we amplify, right? And, and how do we not just stop this attack? And by the way, stopping the attack, fantastic, wonderful. I will take it any day of the week, right? But sometimes when we do it right, we're, we're not just stopping the attack, but we're moving them from that pathway to violence over to a pathway to recovery where we haven't just stopped that instant of violence, but maybe we've actually put them on a safer trajectory going forward in their life, at least for, for the immediate future, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to ask you about, you know, what are our next steps? How do we move to resolution? How do we bring people together? We love operating in our silos, but first <laughs> I'd like to take, take a moment and thank our sponsor. Sure. Officer Store, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate, and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit us at officerstore.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jack Roselle, Director of the Southwestern Pennsylvania Regional Threat Assessment Hub. Well, doctor, we know what to do in terms of response and addressing the active threat. What are the different roles that law enforcement can play in mass violence prevention? It's a great question. So the first thing is, you know, for the frontline patrol, right, uh, for, for the call takers and the PSAP, you know, be that credible receiver of information. Take people's concerns and threats seriously. And by the way, some of the reports that come into these programs and they're a little bogus, right? Um, but we still want to investigate. We still want to take it seriously. We still want to thank the person for bringing their concerns forward, right? Um, and a lot of this, you know, going back to some of our, you know, police 101 stuff, this is about finding the opportunity to function as a guardian before we have to function as a warrior, right? Absolutely. We need tactical responses and tactical responses save lives. Um, but if we can do it left to bang, we want to, we want to be working left to bang, right? Another part of this, and, and this is maybe for, you know, the real passionate patrol folks, but also the investigators and the brass and the leadership, right? Help manage, help create, help protect and, and champion threat management teams, blending together law enforcement, behavioral health, community leaders, uh, you know, legal professionals to, to try and do it right. Um, for officers at, at any level, get educated, get educated, learn more about this. This isn't something that comes up a lot of times in, in the basic police academy training or, or the continuing ed, right? Um, Department of Homeland Security's National Threat Evaluation and Reporting Center has great online resources to learn about this. The FBI's BAU, Behavioral Analysis Unit 1, has phenomenal resources and provides a lot of training around this. Same thing with the Secret Service. And one of my favorite groups is the Association of Threat Assessment Professional, uh, which has a whole network of regional uh, uh, regional groups as well as national meetings as well. And I highly recommend finding your local chapter and getting involved. And yeah. finally, the, the, and this is the big thing, right? This is this is for, for uh, you know, the, the, the executive uh, folks. Find the funding sources, 
find the dollars, right? There are good opportunities from, you know, BJA, from Department of Homeland Security's Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships, and they're looking for opportunities to fund threat management programs across the country so that you can grow and build your local team and, and build that network, uh, uh, that safety net for your region. Yeah, absolutely. Good advice, all of it. Uh, I used to belong to ATAP, and one of the side um, benefits is that the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals has their conference in Disneyland, so you could take the whole thing. Uh, no, I want to correct you. We, we have it at Anaheim and in Orlando, because if we tell our chiefs that it's at Disney or Disney, they may not pay for it. And oh, by the way, if you are law, if you're sworn law enforcement and it's your first meeting, we have scholarships available, uh, which can be a great opportunity to, to come and join us and, and meet some of the most incredible professionals from so many different disciplines uh, that I've ever had the privilege to work with. Okay, I stand corrected. Anaheim and Orlando. Okay, so why can't we just use existing criminal code? and involuntary hospitalization to prevent these attacks. In California, we've had Laura's Law on the books for over 20 years. It was optional. So, you know, for the first five or 10 years, I think only two out of 52 counties chose to use uh, Laura's Law to, to involuntarily detain someone. It yeah. seems that there's so many behavioral health field uh, professionals seem resistant to mandatory detentions. Is that true? Well, here's the thing. We, we have very specific legal criteria for how ill and dangerous you need to be to be detained for a period of time, just like on the criminal justice side. Um, you know, you can't just lock me up for, for being a jerk, right? By the time someone gets to the point that they're looking at a charge that's going to put them behind bars for an extended period of time, or by the time they've done something to justify an involuntary hospitalization for an extended period of time, they've either gotten way too close or they've already done something really awful, right? And like our, our bomb squad buddies tell us, right? They, they want us to call them when the timer says six hours, not when it says six minutes. And it, it's kind of the same thing here. We wanna work further upstream, right? If you sort of imagine like the, the, this wedge or this cone, right? As we get closer to the actual incident, as we get closer to bang, we have fewer options, right? We have involuntary interventions. We tackle and shackle, handcuff, you know, lock them up, uh, or, you know, that, that tactical kinetic response, which is sort of worst case scenario, right? If we get them upstream when they're just pissed off, when they're just having agreements, when they're just starting to say, you know, this bank foreclosed on my grandma and that's when she ended up in the nursing home and broke her up and blah, 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 and they're gonna pay because grandma's birthday is coming up. Like if we can catch them there, we have a much broader array of tools that we can use to intervene and to redirect them. A lot of which don't require handcuffs or arrests or, you know, oh, in, involuntary treatment. A lot of it can be a lot more collaborative and it's that sort of soft glove intervention, right? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I, I totally respect your time. I just have a couple more questions. One is that when law enforcement does get the heads up about an individual mm -hmm. that they think is a person at risk for targeted violence, what is the most important thing they need to know? Right. You know, take all the threats seriously. Right. Um, even though, we you know, eh, eh, like some of them, you still want to investigate. You still want to do your due diligence because God forbid you miss one of those that, that really ended up being someone. Right? Um, and sometimes once you start peeling the layers back, 
what seemed not a big deal at first, you peel it back and you find a lot more risk factors and a lot more reasons to be concerned. And also, hopefully with that, you find a lot more opportunities to intervene and, and leverage a, a safer solution. Um, investigate the cases, engage with collateral informants, right? If you could explain or understand this purely through the criminal justice lens, you all would have fixed it by now, right? Uh, if we could have fixed this just with the mental health, we, we would have fixed it by now. But we got to collaborate and bridge some of that information, including understanding and applying the exceptions within HIPAA, within FERPA, and finding the partnerships for information sharing uh, that work. And finally, if your local law enforcement uh, or your jurisdiction has a threat management team, make sure that your folks are involved in it, that you're supporting it. If you don't have one um, right now, when you don't have a scary case in front of you, start start building it, right? Um, you know, no one want, wants to walk into the command center and walk around and say, hi, my name's Jack Roselle, here's my card, right? You want to have those relationships up front and in advance. And it, it what works for emergency management works for threat management as well, I found. Yeah. Hundred percent. We 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 push that uh, know your opposite number way before the playing field. So, what's the most important thing for community members to know yeah. if they're worried about somebody at risk? Uh, they see maybe a couple of indicators. They they really re, you know resist calling, but once they do, what, yeah. what should they be talking about? The most important thing is it really is if you see something or you hear something, say something, right? Uh, figure out who the right credible receiver of the information is for you. Can you pass it off to local law enforcement, you know, the, the federal FBI line? Uh, is it, you know, in or your workplace, can you pass it off to HR, workplace security? Can you pass it off to someone in your house of worship or, or, or your school or your kid's school, right? Um, find that responsible receiver of the information. If it's somebody in your personal life, and this gets tough, help them develop and maintain healthy, positive relationships, right? We know not every relationship is healthy and positive, but we also know that people who have healthy and positive relationships are much less likely to engage in violence, right? And oh yeah, by the way, if there is mental illness, get them help, right? As a psychiatrist, if I see a person at risk for violence, if they've been flagged to one of our threat management programs, and I see psychiatric illness, in a way, I kind of like that's kind of a win for me because that's something I've got a really good toolkit for, and I can apply some really good interventions there, right? Yeah, good advice. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. Dr. Jack Roselle, Director of Southwestern Pennsylvania Regional Threat Assessment Hub and Co-Director of the University of Pittsburgh's UPMC System-Wide Threat Assessment and Response Team, the start. Thanks so much. Uh, what are you working on these days? Uh, you know, right right now we're working on some statewide strategic planning uh, uh, for, for the state of Pennsylvania. And um, yeah, so that, that's one of my new big activities. And the other one is uh, very honored that I've been appointed by uh, Governor Shapiro as a member of our state's new Citizen Law Enforcement Advisory and Review Commission. So Awesome. Well, yeah. they're lucky to have you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, to our listeners, hope you enjoyed today's show. Dr. Ozell has some great information listed in the show notes, a couple of links, uh, a link to ATAP, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. And like he said, if you haven't been and it's your first time, there are scholarships, so check it out. Uh, really good places uh, where they hold their conferences. I won't say where they are. <laughs> All right, take good care, stay safe, and hope to talk to you again real soon. Thank you, sir, for having me. Be safe. You bet.